Welcome to Outside the House, where we discuss local and national political issues and ideas with a lens of social and climate justice and connect with the radical people who are taking action across the country because they believe we can do better. I'd like to acknowledge that the land we live on, also known as Turtle Island, in addition to the traditional names locally, is sacred land that has been inhabited by Indigenous and First Nations people for more than 15,000 years. I'm thankful for this opportunity to share space, honor, and celebrate the lives and traditions of those whose land was stolen from them. I'm your host, Katie Robertson, and welcome to this episode of Outside the House. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. On this week's guest episode, I welcome Tanya Bruce. Tanya is an organizer, activist, and truth seeker about Canada's colonial past. She calls in other colonial folks as she provides queer commentary on Canadian politics, history, and its lies on her Instagram account called Settle in Settlers. This episode has been edited and condensed for free listening. To hear the full episode, subscribe at patreon.com slash outside the house. So uh, welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, so I just thought that, you know, I would invite you on here because I'm really inspired by the messages and the work that you're doing um, on Instagram. I've been following you for a little bit and I thought I would invite you so that we could have a conversation about sort of what got you started or what inspired you to start the account and then some of the work that you've been doing. Sure, sure. Um, thank you for, for reaching out. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to reach more people and in a different format. Um, the interesting thing I think about all social media is that it's written word. So no tone, no body language, no no pausing, you know? So it, it's sometimes I wonder when I write a particular post even how it's being read so it's it's nice to find spaces now to actually put my my voice in into the conversation so thank you um so settling settlers uh has been a bit of a journey uh i would say i started five years ago roughly um and that coincided with my my leaving a career so for 15 years i worked in travel and I always knew when I was going to turn 40 that I would leave. And the idea was to go off onto a little plot of land and, and build sort of a, an off-the-grid campground learning space for people, um, just so Canadians and, and people from wherever could, could go to a space and find calm and remember that we used to live differently, right? So that was sort of the beginning. I've always been a tree hugger or whatever, whatever word people <laughs> describe the people who believe in stepping lightly on the planet. Um, so yeah, so that was sort of the beginning. And then it's, you know, everyone's like, well, if you're going to run a, a learning retreat, you have to have a social media footprint. So that sort of brought me into Instagram as a space. And then I would just say, probably like a lot of I'm white, so as a lot of white people I think are doing now, as you begin to learn, you you realize that this conversation is much larger than you expected it to be. So when you start to really want to, quote, tackle environmental degradation and climate change as a white privileged person, I think a lot of us start in our own home, right? So we're concerned about our plastic use maybe changing up our diet because we're becoming aware of the the trauma that animal agriculture, large-scale animal agriculture causes the planet, uh, you know, commuting differently, and we kind of start there. And then depending on how your brain works, if you keep reading, then all of a sudden you learn about environmental racism, stolen land, who's really been on the front lines, you know? Um, so that that, I think is is kind of where it began but then even before it was settling settlers it began 45 years ago in Brandon, manitoba so i grew up in a community with a residential school um okay. it opened in 1895 it closed in 1972 so the year my sister was born i was born in 75 
So unlike my parents and my grandparents, uh, I didn't grow up around an active residential school, but it is fair to say I grew up in the fallout of colonial violence and white supremacy. So for me, when we're now decolonizing Canada or shutting down Canada or, or talking about, you know, pipelines and where they go and rail blockades, and we see this new racism, I also have a 20-year start of my life that was deeply entrenched in colonial violence and racism. So for me, this is a really personal conversation. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very personal conversation. It's not theoretical to me at all, because when I see violence that's happening today, I now have memories of violence that happened in the community that raised me. So I would say that's part of my drive to maintain this space. I post pretty much every day. So it's it's very strange it's very strange it, and it started it really it just started out of necessity there there's not a lot of canadians there's definitely not a lot of white people i think that are sort of you know taking on the role of what does it mean to be a truth teller and and you know 2015 we had the truth and reconciliation commission of canada and that came out, that coincided with myself quitting my job and turning 40. And that, that report for me, like, I don't even know. I don't even, I don't even know actually what words to say to describe what that report did to my life. But it's, it, it, it altered it. Like it took me on a trajectory and, and turned it 180 in the opposite direction. Like, I, like, I, I don't know how to explain to people what it feels like to read a report about the theft and torture of children and see your community repeatedly. And then the one to, that you grew up in. Yeah, Brandon, Manitoba. It's in the summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation. In 2018, I believe it was, we unearthed a mass grave containing the bodies of 60 Native children. So I'm also from a community that created a mass grave. And we don't talk about that as a nation. So Settle and Settlers, for me, really... It became sort of a private uh, call out, literally just from one Canadian to my nation, just via the old World Wide Web. Like, is anybody out there? My family and I are, we are struggling to have this conversation. I think as most families are, especially with generational gaps and just different lifestyles, you know? So there was that. And then the friends that I knew from 25 to 40 in Toronto, um, mainly straight, cis, diverse in their backgrounds, but all very privileged. And they didn't really want or understood kind of this like, I don't know, unmanageable grief that now they saw me in. And they were like, God, you know, <laughs> we liked you when you were into tiny homes and riding your bike and you were always bringing <laughs> like, you know, plant-based baking to the party but now that you have this uncontrollable grief that mixes in with rage we don't we don't we don't know how to deal with you mm -hmm. so I just got isolated and I got isolated quite quickly and that it doesn't take long that's for sure <laughs> yeah yeah and I don't like I don't hold any I like I love my family I love my friends I don't hold any anger towards them and that's one of the side effects of being in therapy since you're 29 like you just know right like mm -hmm. People are doing the best they can. And unfortunately, I think Canadians and especially white people were failing. We're failing en masse. And it's it's a bit grotesque at this point. So what, what started out as sort of um, one person wanting to go to the woods and build a tiny home to share and invite people in to remind them of nature. And part of the drive for that was in 2012. Stephen Harper, with his false majority government, passed the Jobs and Growth Act, which just gutted all environmental regulation in Canada, changed, um, the, it raised the financial threshold for environmental impact studies, so larger projects could be passed with no oversight, 97% of our water instantly unprotected, and then he also changed the way sovereign people, so Indigenous communities, could uh, sell off land. So that, when the Jobs and Growth Act happened in 2012, that's when Teresa Spence, uh, the chief from Attawapiskat, went to Ottawa and began a hunger strike. And that bore the I Don't Know More movement. 
Mm-hmm. And I was at that point in my life where I was like researching tiny homes. I was changing up diet, you know, like really kind of being aware of this appending apocalyptic climate crises that was coming. I have a degree in environmental science. Like I've always commuted by bike. Um, so I, I've always been in this conversation. So when I saw that in 2012, I was horrified, terrified, and again, reached out to community. Nobody really seemed to get on board with it. So when you don't have your community, I just started tuning into the Idle No More movement. And then that's when I started listening to Indigenous voices and really learning. And then 2015 is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That knocks me off my kilter. And then what was it? 20, 2018, you know, we get 12 years left until the planet's dead. 2019, the epidemic of murdered, missing Indigenous women and girls. 2020 is now 2017, Donald Trump. So it's just been a shit show. <laughs> you know? So for the last eight years, I've kind of been on my own. Um, I like not attending any universities or higher education, Um, just really a random Canadian on their own doing the work. Mm -hmm. And then I I feel like I've been doing the work long enough now that within the space of Instagram, you know, you make enough deposits, people start to believe you that in a world of fake news or who is this person? I think I have close to 3,500 posts at this point. So if you really wanted to know who I was, you you can spend probably four hours and go through five years of me publicly learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a bit of a long answer because it's been a bit of a long journey, but it really, it, it began with a desire to teach Canadians about the outdoors to get everybody to remember that we are the outdoors. And then it was heavily influenced by Indigenous voices, which brought me to now joining the call to shut down Canada, return land, respect treaties, empty the prisons, dismantle the child welfare system. The whole thing of it's got to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, when you're speaking about the isolation that's happened and, you know, trying to call in other white folks, um, do you, what role do you think our government plays in, you know, for me, how, the way I see a major problem of this is, is this, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but the nationalism piece, um, you know, we start kids in school and we tell them like, this is the best country in the world that you can live. And like, you have to have pride and, but we're not telling the truth. Um, we're not good or bad. Like you had said, and and then now, you know, the truth is, it was all a lie, frankly, in my opinion. And I just, my struggle is having these conversations with these people and they're like, how dare you? Like, you know, you're a traitor to our country. And I'm like, but we don't really have a country, in my opinion. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Oh. It has been one of the most emotionally confusing experiences of my life because I really believe that the most Canadian thing I can do right now is to return land. Yes. So where I struggle is I was raised like, I was raised on the teat of Canada is good. And I believe in that. I don't believe that it's a nationalist thing, but I believe that the nation of Canada, the people within it, historically speaking, when the global community needed help, we, we showed up, right? Like that's, that's the story of Vimy Ridge. It's the story of D-Day, the Korean war, the Suez canal crisis, Lester B. Pearson, the blue hats. Like there was a period of time that we were one of the most important nations in the world because we were that middle power. And we were this strange group of scrappy little, I was going to say, you know, scrappy little folk that, that, you know, the myth, right? We punched above our weight Mm -hmm. and that we could get into difficult situations like the Suez Canal crisis when you thought like that area was going to implode and diplomacy 
And that, like, I grew up in a house that, like, prided itself on kind of that Lester B. Pearson, and then I think it's Robertson and Wrong, like, kind of those three diplomats that we don't even know as a nation anymore. But they gave us sort of that Canadian identity that we hold true. It's less that it's a liberal party thing, but it, there was there was a few men, and they grew up in World War One and World War Two, and I think what they wanted was to not have to experience war. They were also completely racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, and all of those things. So I'm not by any means being like, raw Canada, let's go. But this is the problem with Canada is when you choose not to teach your history because it will open up questions to residential schools, Inuit dog tags, um, you know, Nellie McClung running an, a sterilization program after getting white women the right to vote, the Highway of Tears. When we refuse all of that, we also refuse the moments where we did do something that was extraordinary. So this inability to sit with kind of the evil of the human also has now numbed us from the ability to know that we have the potential for greatness. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, you add in the fact that the refrain of this nation is, oh, at least we're not Americans. <laughs> so you have 33 million people living together in the second largest landmass called a country in the world. So we're, we're distanced, physically we're distant from each other. Like 90% of our population lives within 10 degrees longitude of the 49th parallel. We're, in, we're a 6,000 kilometer lineup. Mm -hmm. So we, we have no commonality that way. And then we have no commonality because we refuse to have a history. Because if we have a history, we have to have a total history. So we know none of our history. We know none of it to, to go to. So one of the things I'm doing now, and I'll be honest, when I first started this, I, I failed at any kind of connectivity because I was in a state of absolute grief and panic. I was in a state of grief because being from a residential school community is, is a very difficult thing because you have nowhere to grieve. Our government won't won't have an honest conversation with it. I'm not allowed to have an honest conversation with it. So imagine like saying to like somebody from Auschwitz, don't worry about it. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's no biggie. It's Auschwitz. Move on. It's all good. Long time ago. Yeah. The school closed the year my sister was born. My mother and father were, were pregnant, like making a child, making a family in a community where just up the hill there were children in a school against like their will but we we can't talk about that so that that's a part of our government like when justin trudeau got elected i thought oh you son of a bitch man i can't believe you get to be the hero of the next world new or like i was like i can't believe this because that's what his campaign said electoral reform every vote has a count science-based decision making a new way forward nation to nation gay rights gay rights like all of it and i was just drinking like, water <laughs> For all yeah. indigenous communities. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, if this guy comes in and just does all of this, he is going to be like, wow, the hero of the universe, basically. You know what I mean? Like he's he's literally telling us on the campaign trail, he's taking capitalism on. Mm-hmm. And then he got elected and he broke every promise. And in 2015, it was the highest voter turnout since 1993, and nobody cared. When he broke his promise on electoral reform, nobody cared. And I mean, when I say nobody, none of, none of the Gen Xers were angry. Nobody, nobody showed up. And I was like, wow. So he just once again silenced green voices. And mm -hmm. nobody, nobody can see that. So this is the other problem. Because we don't know our history, we don't know our current, we don't know our future, we don't know anything. So I live in a Canada where I look around at people and I'm like, I can't believe that you can't extrapolate how traumatizing that one supposedly light decision, oh, electoral reform, is to the collective well-being of the country and the communities you live in. Mm -hmm. Get in the fucking game, people. But then you can't say that because then everyone gets upset. And that's the other thing that's very difficult nowadays with social media and the, 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 you know, how we were raised as individuals. It's like, I'm talking systemic. You're a great person. Here's a gold star. Yep. Now get in the fucking game. <laughs> so there's so much going on, but no, our government failed us.
failed us immensely. The first and easiest thing that Justin Trudeau could have done is phoned up Cindy Blackstock and said, listen, we need plaques up on all of our statues, all of our buildings, all of our streets. Here you go. Here's $5 million for wages, for time, for the raw materials. Can you get that done in the next six months? Yeah, not a problem. Boom, boom, boom. All of the history goes up. Mm-hmm. And then you stand up and you say to Canadians, listen, deep breath. That's all we've done. We've just expanded the story. We're going to let all these plaques stay up for the next two years. And then in the end of these two years, if you really want to keep walking by John A. McDonald, while you read everything about John A. McDonald and you're okay with that, then that's the next level of conversation. But I think what would have happened in Canada is that we probably wouldn't have been so angry mm-hmm. about it statue being toppled because we would have actually had the guidance and the time to digest the truth. I think it would have been amazing if after we did that, Justin Trudeau collected up all of the statues and we went either Ottawa or Winnipeg or wherever else and we built parks and you walk through it and it was a teaching park and there were spaces to grieve. And then there you came out and it was a totally different kind of like park with not statues but like new leaders and new ways of being in public space god maybe there'd be a greenhouse where we could actually have food for free what a novel concept instead of sugary drinks at the fucking gift shop Mm -hmm. so there's been no thinking there's been no education there's ministers and MPs and privileged people centering themselves in the conversation, buying art, putting on headdresses that should never touch their heads. And then we call it good enough and we go back about our day and nobody knows anything. And I sit here and I'm like, wow, I know so much that people don't know. And it's not because I'm special. It's because eight years ago with the I Don't Know More movement, I sat down to read. And then because of where I was raised, I had 20 years of, of, of personal history and experience that instantly validated because that's how we have to do for marginalized folk all the time, right? Are they really telling the truth? <laughs> but my lived experience validated everything I read like that. I was like, of course that happened. This happened where I'm from. This happened where I'm from. This is the violence. This is the violence. This is the violence. And then as a queer person born in 1975 into a nation that thought I was like a mental illness that they wanted to ship off to an island if they didn't kill me first, I have no, I don't hesitate for a moment to believe in the violence from my nation and my neighbors. I've seen it. I've witnessed it from all of them. Canada is very, very, very hateful. I love Canadians. Where do you think that comes from, the hate? Oh... I don't think it comes from the heart because I think like everything, whenever we do these creepy ass experiments, like Heineken, they do that commercial where they put a transphobe and a trans person together to build a table over beer. And oh my God, 30 minutes later, they were friends, you know? So I feel like, and then this is also the problem is we've gone so long without being neighbors that I don't even, I think the hate really comes from a very small demographic and it comes from manipulation of fact, right? We always see that. Ford elected with four out of 10 votes. The premier in New Brunswick, another conservative, got in with 39.3%. And both of those men now, four out of 10 votes, they have complete power of their provinces. So I think the hatred is always with the same group and it's white, it's straight, it's cis, it's non-disabled and it's male. And it's backed up by, as we saw in the U.S., creepy ass white women who keep voting in terrible men who destroy communities and terrorize BIPOC people. And I think white women, white women really need to, uh, I don't know, I don't know what do you like how to say it nicely, but like suck it up. And just, I have a rule. I don't identify first off as a woman, but sometimes my language, I just get to use whatever language I want because I'm talking about myself. So I have a rule. White woman activism in public, white girl tears in private. And I think that's a very good first step for people. And I think that's a very smart way to do it. I cry all the time. Oh my God. Like Mm -hmm. I have topics that I don't post about or I don't talk about because I can't yet talk about them. 
And I give that space. And I think that space is totally valid. And it's not like crying where I sit here and I'm like, oh, my heart. (laughs) (laughs) But grief, grief. And it's, it's like, I grieve, I grieve for the loss of like queerness. I grieve for the loss of friendships. I grieve for the loss of like community and, and water and housing and food and all of that. Mm -hmm. And that's valid. And I think that's one thing white women get jammed up on. They're like, well, I'm overwhelmed and now I can't even cry. And it's like, you can, but you can't cry first. That's all you do is cry. Right. Like, it's so exhausting having to make sure that privileged people feel safe before you just tell them your life story. It's like, fuck off. You never made sure I was safe. That's why I have this life story. Mm-hmm. And now I show up here to tell you about homophobia and environmental degradation and misogyny and ableism. I have to, like, do this light and fluffy dance for you so you can find it palatable. It's like, that's a bit fucking much. So I don't think the hatred is like that we are hateful. I think it's that we are afraid of each other. Mm-hmm. We've lost the ability to communicate, which we know is partly from social media. It's partly from media. It's partly from working and commuting and like everything. And then I also think it's just that we don't understand that sometimes rage is part of the healing and you have to give people space for their rage. And as a queer person, I can totally give space for rage. I, I have friends where we definitely, I sit in a room and they're like, fuck white people. And I'm like, my people are shit. I don't <laughs> bat an eye. I don't breathe deep because I know they're not talking about Tanya Bruce. Right. But they are definitely talking about my privilege, my family, my friends, my community, my government. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's because of my queerness. I'm like, yeah, fuck those white people. They fucking suck. But then they make beautiful art and they continually produce things to bring us into conversation. And that's one thing I think indigenous people do that Canadians don't recognize is that they have never, and this is the whole land back. Oh, they're coming for our homes. Like, Yeah, and they've never they have never said to us like if you listen to when indigenous folk talk to the Canadian government and the Canadian people, they are always calling Canadians into conversation. They are always calling us in. Sit with us, talk with us, come to our communities, learn, be with us, be our neighbors. This is what we mean. We want to be this way. This is how it was before. We lived apart as different nations. We never fucking stole children and put them in schools. Yeah. We didn't experiment on people. We didn't push species to the brink of extinction. We don't see ourselves outside of our natural environment. You do. And we can see that you are struggling because if you weren't struggling, why do your communities look the way they do? Yeah. Come and be with us. And because of capitalism, which has made us believe that, you know, consumption is culture and brands are heritage every time we discuss dismantling capitalism we think we're going to dissolve into what nothing so we fight to protect a system that terrorizes us ourselves because we've forgotten that we are scottish or ukrainian or polish or tibetan or thai or you know all of the other elements that make you up before you just became a canadian Mm-hmm. I don't know if Thai and Tibetan people do, but I feel like in my white space of its diversity, like we don't really know what it's like to be Scottish. Very little. I know very little. <laughs> I've just yeah. started doing that research. And that's one of the things, my friend, so Keith Akishing Tobias, we're do, we do that work together and we have the Truth and Healing Project. But she, she's been like paramount over the last two years in helping me understand. And one of the things that she said to me, which was the most, most important thing was go learn your own story. Mm-hmm. And then I started to learn my own story. And that's, that's really, that was, you know, a year ago. And I think that's also to go back to your first question about settle and settlers and how it is. And now if I didn't meet Keith, I have no idea where I would be. But yeah, she's she's been like a mentor, a teacher, a safe place to land, an artist, a co-collaborator. It's brilliant. She's brilliant. 
That would be my one thing I would say to every Canadian is the only thing you have to lose right now is your ignorance and you have everything to gain. I find it interesting, you know, when you're talking about white women and, and, and that role I play too. Um, Hmm. when we look at all of these different systems and I don't think that they, they can be mutually exclusive. I think it's sort of one that's, that's, that's my general feeling is it's like, it's white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism. Uh, And, and you can't have one without the other. I don't, in my opinion, it's one phrase, one term, Uh, but you know, it is a system that terrorizes us and and white women specifically that I've seen. We are so uh, complicit in this. And it's like, just so that we can have this perceived sense of, you know, some like small sense of safety in relation to that system. But it's like we're cutting our nose off to spite our face. <laughs> it's it's not helpful for us. It's it's so um, damaging and traumatic, and 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 it kills your soul, you know. But but we continue to sit inside of it just for that one little piece of 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 you know that that white supremacy side of things like we do we we gain privilege from it but at the same time it's the worst thing for us so it's so interesting for me to watch you know and and i do it sometimes too you know you have to you as you raise your consciousness you're a little bit more aware of it but i watch it and it's heartbreaking because it's like you're hurting yourself and your children and 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 our communities I've, I've always been consciously queer is how I would say it. Um, and the whole coming out journey, there is no right or wrong way. Whenever you stumble into queerness, that's, you know, but for me, it's, oh, I've always been consciously queer, even like at five, my earliest memories are very queer. So I don't understand heteronormative people and I don't mean that in a cruel way it's mm-hmm. kind of the same way I think straight people come to pride and gawk at us like right. I don't understand heteronormative um, I don't understand how men want to be with women uh, as either life partners sexual partners but really hold no And I'm not saying all men, so, you know, but as a collective, this is the narrative in the heteronormative space is that men feel themselves to always be superior to women. If a man makes less than a wife, oh God, they don't, they downplay the power of feminine energy, Mm -hmm. yet they came out of a woman. Like there's such deep misogyny in the heteronormative space. And I really find watching straight women and then racist straight white women how they elevate and accept all of the supposed quote adjectives that belong to maleness and default to men mind-blowing I find it mind-numbing like women literally could hook up with other women as a power group as we just saw in Poland when that I can't Mm -hmm. remember who got elected in that far-right whack job and he was like, nah, abortion's out. Every woman in Poland didn't go to work, didn't do anything, got into the streets. And guess what? They're like, oh, I think we have to rewrite that law. In Canada, if every woman could actually show up and say, I don't think that Joyce Eshaquin should have been murdered by two nurses in Quebec, we would stop killing Native people when they go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. If all the women in Canada could have shown up on April 8th when... Aisha Hudson, a 16-year-old child, was Mm -hmm. gunned down in a vehicle fleeing an alleged robbery, we would stop killing Native children. If Canadian women could show up, when Canahouse Manuel is building a tiny home literally by herself and her community standing in front of fucking Father Trudeau, capitalism, and everything that is wrong with white supremacy, 
she wouldn't be like dragged off by the RCMP with a broken wrist. No. But Canadian women don't show up. Collectively, they don't show up. And they sit on their lull or whatever that's called. How do you say? You sit on your hunches. And they, and they look at it as though it's this thing that's happening, as though it's politics and it's confusing. And that's the boys. And it's not the boys, it's not the men, it's not politics, it's Canadian women. Canadian women hold the responsibility for righting the wrongs, but they don't. They don't do anything about it. And that's who I'm frustrated with. And no offense to the men, if you show up to the conversation, great. I hold absolutely no, no, I'm not waiting on men. Mm-hmm. Partly because I've, I've never, I've never looked, like, why would I wait on men? Men have never shown up. Across the board, men don't show up. They show up for themselves, but they don't they don't show up for the collective. Because if they did, we, we could end our culture of rape tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But we don't. So my question really is to the supposed softer gender, the kinder gender, the more loving, nurturing gender, where the fuck are you? Like at this point, where are you? I can walk you through every province and list off names of people who we have murdered. The Canadian state murdered, murdered, murdered. We had a report in 2015 come out that says we stole children and tortured them. And we're not, and we're not in the streets right now. Yeah. Where were the moms? Yeah. And where were the dads? And then just where were the caregivers? Where were the parents? Where is the affluent Canadian? Where are the Gen Xers? The 40 to 50 year old crowd right now. Maybe it's more like, what is it? 55 to 40. Yeah. Where, where, where are they? Where are they? The other thing that I want to talk about um, is one of the things that we're trying to get going right now is Wednesday night between 7 and 7.30. And what we would love to see is a million people across Canada coming out every Wednesday between 7 and 7.30 and banging pots and pans and saying thank you to not frontline workers as our government describe them but frontline workers as in land protectors or land defenders and water protectors we want to see canadians physically show up in the streets making noise telling our government that we see this war and we are calling for an end to the war because this is a war they are Mm -hmm. sovereign people Mm -hmm. and we do not stay out of their territories and that is the definition of war. So Wednesdays right now between 7 and 7.30, the ask is that if you can't physically be in the streets, then do something between 7 and 7.30. And if you can't do it then, guess what? Grassroots organizations, they run 24-7. But start making time to have these conversations with people and people outside of potentially the people who agree with you. Reach out to friends and family and just ask them, how do you feel about the fact that we murdered Joyce Eshaquin? And if you don't know who she is, that's a story that people should be looking up because Mm -hmm. what was two weeks ago in the province of Quebec, I can't remember the nation she is from. Joyce went to the hospital. She's no one. She went in with stomach pains. None of it was life-threatening. The nurses basically mocked her and started pumping her full of morphine, a drug that they knew that she couldn't take. She pulled out her smartphone so she could live stream it on Facebook, thinking that that would at least make them stop. They didn't. They continued with the racial slurs, and they killed her. And at the end of it, we we don't know the names of the nurses. We don't know if they've been suspended. Joyce is now just another name on the, you know, epidemic of murdered, missing Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit folk the genocide that our government denies. And the premier of Quebec said, well, systemic racism doesn't exist. So then exactly what was that? Does that mean that anybody who goes into the hospital can be pumped full of a drug and killed? So is that what it is? Because I think that's systemic racism. And I don't understand where were the Canadian nurses? We didn't have one call like for justice from any of our medical community. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? Right. My grandma was a nurse. Two of my aunts were nurses and I have a cousin that's a nurse. And that entire profession just allowed two of their people 
to to literally do the the the, the exact opposite of what they are supposedly all about and there was no outcry canada so again where are canadian women where are canadian nurses where are canadian men you live in a nation with a healthcare system that will kill people while they live stream their death. And if that doesn't sound very familiar to Nazi Germany, I don't know what the fuck does. But where is that story? It's nowhere. So do that between 7 and 7.30 on a Wednesday. See how that goes. And then the other thing I would encourage Canadians to do is actually try and have these conversations because you might start to realize how ingrained racism is in mm -hmm. all of us. Mm -hmm. How internalized, yep. Oh, the pushback that you will receive, the flippancy. And that is another thing that I struggle with. It's like I will literally say things to people about like, how, how have you been? And I'll tell them I'm struggling. These are the things I've learned. No one. No one ever says, how can I help? Mm -hmm. They instantly say, well, it's complicated, Tanya. Oh, that's politics. Yeah. I it know. Takes it takes time. Oh, oh we can't do this happening. overnight. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck reply was that? I literally just told you four different ways that the nation we know of as Canada right now has like systematically killed indigenous bodies, people, young people, like, and you, you don't want to help. Why do you not want to help? And sit with that. Like, why is, like, if you came up to me and said, like, somebody was being brutalized, like, make it more personal. Get a, get a group of your, your female friends together. Oh, my God. One of them has a boyfriend. He's terrible. What do those women do? They go into, like, girlfriend mode yep. like that. Yeah. But then you break it out and you try and talk to them about Joyce or Chantel Moore or Regis Korchinski Paquette or Aisha Hudson. And what do we get? <gasps> complicated Tanya complicated yeah. Yeah. and I'm like what gets lost for straight white women who do this and for queer a gay gay I call them I feel like if you're queer you're in this conversation if you're not you're gay <laughs> what gets lost? well queerness is because queerness is more than sleeping with the same gender 100% you know so I, I there's some people I'm like like Ellen Ellen DeGeneres that's a gay she is not queer right you know yeah. So that's even a thing that I would say to Canadians, like sit with that and like do your own internal kind of, I guess, soul searching. Like, why is it that when it's your intimate friends, you're that girlfriend that's ready to go to go to the, the wall to protect your friend from abuse or a terrible boss or help her with anything that she needs. But when I start to tell you stories about violence done by white supremacy on BIPOC folk, there's an excuse that comes first and you don't say, how can I help? Yeah. If white women could just start saying, how can I help? The revolution would blow up. Like Joyce is our sister, <laughs> you know, that's not, this, it's not. She's a mother. Seven children yeah. just got left behind. Yeah. And she was, she was not ill. Like these were not, these were not life threatening illnesses. This, this, this was a routine. It's like, uh, what I really talk a lot about is indigenous Canadian relationships because that's what I grew up in. And that's sort of my story and what I'm trying to take forward. But there is also absolutely intermixed into the page is an acknowledgement of black voices that have absolutely, like, we have to acknowledge how black folk have been leading this new revolution mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how it was born out of, out of the murder of George Floyd and just, oh, all of the violence, you know? And I think that's, that's the other thing I would just say to white people is that there is so much for us to learn right now. And when you actually can just start learning it, one of the things that I, I started doing a couple years ago was identifying as a racist, mm -hmm. um, not proud, not at all. But mm -hmm. after doing the reading, I was like, okay, so if I'm a white body in white supremacy, which is designed and built around whiteness, then I, I, I'm a racist because by design of the system, it's a racist system. And once I kind of took that identity on as like a good, kind-hearted white person, 
for me, it sort of flipped it because there was such a repulsion in realizing that I am a racist Mm -hmm. that now I I do the work all the time. Mm -hmm. And if somebody like points out something that I've done, which is racist, I'm not angry. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Thank you so much. One for, for expending the emotional labor to yet again, educate another white person Two, thank you so much for trusting me that I have the intelligence and like the ability to give this feedback and, and react in a way that is, is, I guess, kind or appropriate, you would say. Um, That's the other thing even I would try and encourage white people is that there's such a freedom that comes with dismantling white supremacy for yes. yourself. If yes. Whiteness is if if whiteness exists now, but whiteness isn't true. Like I am Scottish, I am French. Yeah. And had we come over here and not behaved the way we had, and like I wrote a poem about this. What if we had broken bread and not treaties? And if I had been born in the exact same location in a world without white supremacy, then today I would identify as a Scottish Ojibwe person. And imagine what that could mean to me. It would mean that I have an understanding of my heritage, like my real biological genetic heritage. My last name is Bruce, for God's sake. Like, I don't know if you know who Robert the Bruce is or Braveheart. (laughs) Mine's Robertson, so I I know. (laughs) Yeah, right? I I hear we've done some things. Yeah. I mean, I think about Ojibwe and, like, what that culture is and means and like what that mashup could have looked like instead i'm from manitoba the province that everybody tells me they don't even care to visit yeah and like i am supposed to have a national pride in a nation that says well at least you're better than these guys but i won't tell you who you are so i don't know I don't know. I think if you have the courage to learn the story of Canada, then you're also going to come out on this other end knowing yourself way better. Even the messy parts. But you're going to know yourself way better. And I think I'm I'm the most happiest, most comfortable in my body I've ever been. And I've also been the most uncomfortable and the most afraid I've ever been. Same. So Wednesday night, <laughs> Wednesday night, seven to seven thirty, pots and pans. Yeah, yeah, and it is. It's really a decentralized grassroots call in for for engagement from Canadians, and also because Canadians need to start learning how to protest and get in the streets because we don't. And I mm-hmm. hate to tell you, I think you're about to become very afraid of your government. Yeah. Like we just, I just saw a post today with Toronto where they're removing people from parks. Do you know what they've offered them? They've built plexiglass squares in like an auditorium type space. So essentially it looked like the camps along the U.S.-Mexico border, but instead of chain link fence, it's plexiglass. Plexiglass, yeah. Why are we doing that? How would that even care? It's another prison form. And what just happened during COVID, Rivera, the government-owned, how it like senior center yeah, highest rate. we have to bring the military we to, in yeah we had to empty prisons because they're mainly full of people on remand which is another whole podcast you should have mm-hmm. we're emptying those because of high covid and now during the second wave of a pandemic we're going to go put people into plexiglass boxes like we, we we built residential schools we built reserves we built internment camps in world war ii like wake up fellow canadians yeah yeah. who you are because if, you know <laughs> i don't know what else. yeah it's not gonna stop until we do it won't end no and it has and to it's, and the kind of the last thing i'll say is as somebody who attends you know the pride uh weekends where it doesn't always just feel like a celebration and sometimes it just still feels like solidarity and occupying space i really think that canadians have been sold the media version of what the quote protests are and they're not anything that you think they are they're families they're friends there's their neighbors they're random people colliding and having some of the most brilliant heartfelt i can't believe i'm saying these things to somebody i barely know conversation <laughs> And they're, they're brilliant Mm -hmm. and you leave them and you have like some kind of hope again, because it's absolutely mind numbing to me that we have built a society 
where we don't engage. We don't smile. We don't talk in lineups. We like drive in a way where everyone's a, a pylon or an interference. We don't dance. When you go to like quote protests, which are actually solidarity events, mm-hmm. you learn a different way of communicating. And it's a way of communicating that needs to come back. And it's beautiful. Like you check in with pronouns, you mind your ableist language and you, you talk slowly and you think before you speak and you acknowledge who you are within the crowd that you're engaged with. I think you also find community again or that it still exists. (laughs) Yes, it still exists. Exactly. Yeah. It really still exists. Everybody. I think we're so concentrated on this end of this like apocalyptic world that we have totally forgotten that we have all of the science right now. We have all of the people. What we lack is the leadership. And we know that every revolution that is needed has always come from the streets. Mm-hmm. So get in them. Bang get some in them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tanya. I, yeah. I, I'm wow. <laughs> you're this. You're my first guest uh, on the podcast, <laughs> and I am wow. I'm really blown away. I, I'm so thankful and honored that you would Thank spend you. this time with me, and and uh, as you said earlier, have the courage and the courtesy to uh call me in and everybody else that's listening so thank you so much and and everybody can find um tanya on instagram at settle it settle in settlers but it's settle underscore in underscore settlers so and you have to type the entire thing in because i have been what is called shadow banned <laughs> fun times so it turns out <laughs> when you start to talk about your government honestly and then you start to ask people to show up in the streets with you you get shadow banned which means if you don't type in my exact handle i never appear on any searches anymore yes i will see you in the streets next wednesday Beautiful. Thanks, Tanya. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Outside the House. We'd like to thank our guests, valued sponsors, and of course, all of our listeners for your support. Don't miss any of our weekly episodes. Follow us on social media and subscribe at patreon.com slash outside the house for ad-free and uncut content. Stay safe and be well.